This program is sponsored by the Codley Foundation, based in Los Angeles, California. The Codley Foundation is dedicated to advancing science for the benefit of humanity. Reese's peanut butter cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see. So, no, that's a good thing. Uh, (laughs) That's definitely not a problem. Uh, Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil. Meet Stacy. Stacy's on the hunt for a new pair of trendy glasses. Call me picky, but I just can't find the one. Luckily for Stacy, Walmart Vision has virtual try-on. Now she can try on hundreds of frames virtually, then upload her prescription and get new glasses delivered right to her door. Really? <laughs> yeah, really. Well, the hunt just took a turn for the better. Buy your next pair of glasses with virtual try-on from Walmart. Welcome to Easy Eye Care. Welcome to your Walmart. Restrictions apply. See walmart.com for details. I'm Alan Alda, and this is Clear and Vivid, conversations about connecting and communicating. I'm going to make a psychological point about humor, which I can't prove, but I firmly believe. When I am gathered with a family to talk about their loved one who has died and to prepare for the funeral, the minute I hear one of them crack a joke and everyone else laugh, I know that they have internally made the decision to survive this loss. To laugh is to affirm, right? To affirm that the world is not ending. This loss is painful, this loss is terrible, but it is survivable and I am going to survive it. I'm gonna walk through that valley of shadows. I'm not gonna stay there forever. And that that's why humor is so important. That's Rabbi Steve Leader. His new book, The Beauty of What Remains, How Our Greatest Fear Becomes Our Greatest Gift, is a moving and inspiring and surprisingly often funny book about the loss of loved ones. His book is informed not only by his having presided over more than a thousand funerals, but also, and more profoundly, by his reaction to the loss of his father. This is so great to be talking with you because your recent book is about death, and death is one of my favorite subjects. (laughs) But I can't get many people to talk with me about it. I'm right there with you, my friend. You're the guy. I'm the guy. So the book is so interesting, and so is your whole life around the subject of death. Starting with the story of your training in rabbinical school where they took you to a mortuary. (laughs) Right. What a good idea. Yeah, yeah, but, but inadequate. To prepare me, for sure. <laughs> well, what was that day like, that first time in, in a mortuary? As I say in the book, it was my second year of rabbinical school. And they took us on a, there's this class called practical rabbinics, which is sort of like the craft of the rabbinate, right? And so part of the curriculum was to put us all in a van and we all went to a, uh, the local Jewish mortuary in Cincinnati, Ohio. And we walk in and we were making a lot of, you know, funny black humor jokes and defend off the feeling. I yeah. Guess. I mean, yeah, exactly. Which everyone does, you know, like, Oh, people are dying to get in here or uh, business, you know, you know, <laughs> business is dead. All kinds of things we were saying. And then we started in the chapel with a conversation with the owner of the mortuary. And then he took us, you know, behind the scenes. And the first thing I saw, and this this was 38 years ago, and it's still seared in my memory. The first thing I saw was this long, white, 
porcelain table with a drain at the bottom of it and a hose suspended over the top of it. And he said, this is where we wash and prepare the bodies. And it was such a stark look into the mechanics of death. And it was the moment I woke up and thought to myself, wow, I am going to spend an awful lot of time dealing with death. You would think that would have occurred to me, you know, before, but I was 23 years old. But you now, at this point in your life, looking back, how many people have you buried? More than a thousand. So you've really got some insight into this. Well, yes and no. You know, sort of the backstory to the book is that the book was written as a kind of an apology for what I thought I knew about death that had to be reconsidered after my own father died. What did you learn from your father's death that was different from all the other deaths that you officiated at? Well, the first thing I learned is something about grief that I never understood before. You know, your generation and mine and those to follow us, I think we were done a terrible disservice by this idea that there are stages of grief. Why? Why is that? Well, because that implies that grief is a linear process. First, you will feel A, then you will feel B, then you will feel C, then you will feel D, and then it's over. Uh. And that's not true. You know, as I say in the book, anyone who thinks the shortest distance between two points is a straight line doesn't understand grief. Grief is nonlinear. And so I learned in going through the grieving process, which I am still going through for my father, mm. that grief is much more like waves. They, they come very close together and they're very large at first. They do spread out. And sometimes you even get beautiful calm seas for a day, a week, a month, a year. And then when your back is turned, there can be a massive rogue wave of grief that just takes you down. And that is not stages. You know, I used to say to people, Alan, in, at the cemetery before my father died, I used to say to them, look, the most honest thing I can say to you and helpful thing I can say to you right now is that it won't always hurt so much. And I don't say that anymore. Now I say it won't always hurt so often. Mm. Because when it hurts, it hurts every bit as much. And now the next thing, if we can just extend this grief wave metaphor a little bit further, we all have two choices when we see a wave coming at us. Before my father died, the old Steve Leader, when I saw any kind of wave coming at me, my default setting was, I am going to stand my ground, chest forward, face forward, and I'm going to take this wave and hold my ground because I am more powerful than this wave. <laughs> and we all know what happens when that's your default setting. You end up... Yeah upside down, thrown against the rocks, gasping for air, and confused and anxious and alone. So what I have learned that I now teach is the second way to deal with an approaching wave, which is to lie down, let it wash over you, and float with it 
until you can stand up again. That's, that's the way to think about grief. You've got to float with it. So this reassessment of the nonlinear nature of grief was one of the major things that I wrote the book to kind of realign for people. The second thing is about memory, because my father had Alzheimer's for 10 years before he died. Mm. And, you know, we have these glib expressions when people die, like, may his memory be a blessing. Oh, Mm. she'll always live on in your memory. Well, I learned that there's a duality to memory. Yes, memory is beautiful. And it really, really hurts. It's both. I say in the book, it's like being caressed and spat on at the same time, you know? Mm. And it's interesting that the president said this in his inaugural address. I was thinking of that when I was thinking about talking with you. And he knows a thing or two about grief and loss. And he got it exactly right when he said that, and I'm paraphrasing, that to heal requires memory and to remember is painful. And he said this other thing that I found true in my experience that when you remember at first part of that wave that hits you is deep grief and loss but there comes a time when something will remind you of the person who's gone and it'll make you smile that's the duality of memory it's both And I think I was only being, you know, there's this old Yiddish expression that a half truth is a whole lie. (laughs) So to say that memory is beautiful and not to add and painful is a half truth and therefore a whole lie. And so that that's the next thing. And I think the last thing, and this might sound so ridiculously obvious, but it wasn't obvious to me until my dad died. And you would think it would be after a thousand or more funerals. Probably the most important thing I learned is that no matter how many times we say I love you and no matter how many times we hold the people we love and we're held by them, it's never enough. It's never enough. It's never enough, meaning that, it, that it, whatever you've done isn't enough. Meaning while you have the people you love and they're alive, man, lean into that and make the most of it. You know, I don't know about you, but the pandemic, I have found myself as a result of the pandemic saying I love you with much greater ease than I did before. I've said it an awful lot all the time. I hear myself saying it more. Uh, Leaving the room seems like a parting to me, even though I'm going to be back in two minutes. I know. And I think this is one of the things death comes to teach us about life is really that it's who we have, not what we have that matters. Yeah, you've said death is the teacher, the only teacher, I think. What what the, it teaches you to love more? What does it teach you? I think ultimately it teaches you to value your life and the lives of others. You know, imagine, for example, Alan, um, if human beings led deathless lives. What would life be like if we had deathless lives? Well, I'm I'm in the camp that says it would be terrific. <laughs> I I understand that we're all going to go, and it's nothing special when you go, considering that everybody goes. But as Tevye would say, it's no great honor either. 
<laughs> right. Could you choose someone else once in a while? Right. Yeah. Well, what? <laughs> I think a deathless life would lead to a lack of ambition. I think, uh, I don't know that people would have children. I don't know how deeply you could actually love another deathless human being. You know, the poet Wallace Stevens talked about the difference between real and artificial flowers. And he said, the beauty of the flower is that it fades. And that's why no one is moved by plastic flowers. They're not moving because, because they're, not, they're not mortal. And, and so the beauty of a flower is that it fades. I think that's true. Kafka said the meaning of life is that it ends. And I will tell you this, it's the only thing that gets our attention. Do you think for one minute, if this virus wasn't lethal, if it didn't carry the lethality that it does, do you think for one minute we would have had the global pause that we have, that we have had? Not for a second. Talk some more about this, because you still haven't convinced me to die. <laughs> well, I don't have to. <laughs> no, I, I, I know I'm going to, and I'm not afraid of it, by the way. I had an experience of near death that uh, made me realize that I was just taking care of business in the process of what I realized might be dying. And... Um, that's freed me a lot from worrying about dying. No one who's actually dying is really afraid when the when the moment arrives, to be honest. But let's go back to your uh, needing to be a little more convinced. I'll ask you a question, if you don't mind. Knowing that you're coming to the end of your life, has it changed the way you've chosen to live? I'll answer you with a question. Why should it? <laughs> because you're human. Because time is finite and fleeting? The one thing it's done for me, which I'm, I'm interested in, in the fact that it persists after about 17 years, is this feeling of how glad I am to be alive and the gratitude I feel for things around me. My wife put um, some huge boulders on our property in a nice configuration, and I loved the sight of them. And I just noticed a few minutes ago that I love it even more when I'm grateful to her for putting them in. Something special, something, uh, some process in, in the feeling of gratitude that is a, an interesting one. What, what do you think that is? I think it's the result of understanding the ephemeral nature of life and that we don't have forever to enjoy the boulders and appreciate the woman who placed them for you and our children and our grandchildren and our friendships and, you know, a hot fudge Sunday or whatever it is that we don't have forever. And it makes these things more precious, not less. And, and I will say also that I think that another thing that death does is, for the living, is it tends to strip away some nonsense from our lives. You know, it, it, it tends, well, I'll give you an example. I walk through cemeteries a lot. Mm. And I am always struck by the almost complete uniformity of inscriptions on headstones in cemeteries. We're all unique individuals, but guess what? Almost everyone's headstone says exactly the same thing. Because when you have to distill a person's life down to 15 characters per line and you get four lines, you are engaged 
thanks to death, in a very important and productive exercise of essentialism. What really matters? And so you look at headstones. What you don't see is anyone's net worth or their address or where their kid went to college or their, you know, or their resume. There's none of that. What does it say for almost all of us? Loving husband, father, grandfather, friend. Loving wife, mother, grandmother, friend. That's it. And if you can hold on to that truth in life, you're going to have a more meaningful and more beautiful life. You know, a busy life and a meaningful life are not the same thing. When we come back from our break, Rabbi Steve Leader tells me about the importance of humor, even or maybe especially in confronting the death of loved ones. And he tells me about the idea of an ethical will, passing on to the next generation your values as well as your stuff. Clear and Vivid can be downloaded for free because it's supported by our sponsors and by, as they say, people like you. But there are no people like you. You're you. We want to make sure you know about patreon.com slash clearandvivid. That's where, if you love hearing from the extraordinary guests we have on our shows, you can become a patron and get early access to special videos. And at the highest tier, you can join me in our monthly get-together online. I think you'll find out that the listeners to our podcast are often as much fun to hear from as our guests. We're grateful to you all. Thank you. And don't forget to check out patreon.com slash clearandvivid. Disney Plus and Hulu are better together in the Disney Bundle with new movies and series. On Disney Plus, experience the full Taylor Swift The Eras Tour, Taylor's version, with new main show performances and acoustic collection. On Hulu, follow the fantastical evolution of Bella Baxter, played by Emma Stone in the award-winning film Poor Things. All of these and more streaming this month. Get the Disney Bundle with Disney Plus and Hulu. Terms apply. See DisneyBundle.com for details. Reese's Peanut Butter Cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see. So, no, that's a good thing. Uh, (laughs) That's definitely not a problem. Uh, Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil. Everything is changing so fast. I mean, back in my day, we were lucky if we could get one video to load. But now with the Xfinity 10G network, you can power a house full of devices at once with ultra low lag. The future starts now. Restrictions apply. Actual speeds vary and not guaranteed. This is Clear and Vivid. And now back to my conversation with Rabbi Steve Leader. Once I was at a family burial. It was for a man whose wife had already died. And he was a very hyperactive kind of person. And the children had two gravestones. And one was for the wife and one was for him, next to each other. And on hers it said, she inspired us with her energy. And on his it said, he exhausted us with his energy. (laughs) And I loved them for doing that because even in death they found the humor of life as they knew it. Well, and, and probably and, the beauty of the dynamic in that marriage. Sure, sure. But you talk about going for the laugh, which I love. Tell about that a little. 
it's under a, a whole category of how we should show up for people who are dying or people who are mourning, right? Mm-hmm. So often, people call me and they say, Steve, uh, I'm going to see my best friend from college. He was just diagnosed with pancreatic cancer. He's got three to six months. What do I say? And I always answer with three words followed by two words. The th- first three words are just show up. Just show up. Followed by be real. Mm-hmm. And what I mean by that is people who are dying or grieving, they don't need you to walk in the door with your phony, long, sad face and your whispered, oh, Alan, I'm so sorry. It's terrible. <laughs> they don't need that. What they need is for you to be the same person with them in death that you were with them in life, because that's the only thing that reassures them that the bottom hasn't fallen out of the world. So if you're a joker, joke. If you're a feeder, feed. If you're a hugger, hug. If you're a handholder, hold hands. If you're a listener, listen. Be real. That is what people want and what people need. And then that leads to the whole idea of go for the laugh. I'm going to make a psychological point about humor, which I can't prove, but I firmly believe. When I am gathered with a family to talk about their loved one who has died and to prepare for the funeral, The minute I hear one of them crack a joke and everyone else laugh, I know that they have internally made the decision to survive this loss. That's like the two headstones. They've they've turned into humor what could have been an irritation and have accepted life as it was. And to laugh is to affirm, right? To affirm that the world is not ending. This loss is painful. This loss is terrible. But it is survivable. And I am going to survive it. I'm going to walk through that valley of shadows. I'm not going to stay there forever. And that, that's why humor is so important. That's what I love about show business memorials. I don't know if you, how many you've been to. Probably a lot. I've done a lot, including for some comedians where other comedians gave the eulogies. <laughs> <laughs> but that was great. It was a roast. What what <laughs> what what I love, even when it's not totally roasty, what I love is when there's always somebody there who can do a perfect impersonation of the person who's gone. And people love to laugh at how they remember the person. And that is a real reflection of the person's life. And that's yeah. the important part. I'll I'll tell you, I did one funeral that comes to mind it's many years ago. I did a funeral for uh for Jesse White, who you may or may not know of. Jesse White was the Maytag repairman. Oh, yes. Yeah. And he was in uh, on a Broadway show. He was in a Broadway show, and then he became the Maytag repairman. And so I think it was Dave Barry got up and said, you know, every comedian has a, has a thing, has a brand. You know, Rodney Dangerfield uh, got no respect. You know, Rickles insulted you. Uh, Red, Red Buttons never had a dinner. Uh, they're all famous for something. Jesse was famous for sitting on his ass. And that's how he started. (laughs) And he went on and on and on. And then I got up to kind of touch his shoulder, like, we got to wrap this up. He turns around in front of hundreds of people. He says, what, do you want me to stop? Hey, I've been cut short by a rabbi before. (laughs) At that point, I understood I was so out of my depth that... I just needed to sit down and enjoy the show. 
So yeah, it's pretty great. <laughs> and how about Rodney Dangerfield's uh, headstone? Do you know about that? No, what does it oh, say? Oh, this is the best. So despite what I said about headstones teaching us about the essentials, there are outliers, and Rodney Dangerfield is one of them. He's buried at that little cemetery in Westwood where a lot of famous celebrities are buried. This is where Marilyn Monroe is buried and Joe DiMaggio had the rose sent every day. So there's a lot of famous people there. Rodney Dangerfield's uh, grave is in a long row of incredibly famous Hollywood celebrities. And his headstone says, there goes the neighborhood. (laughs) (laughs) Is it true that uh, W.C. Fields had on his headstone, on the whole, I'd rather be in Philadelphia? I don't know. <laughs> that's good. You know what Mel Blank says? What? Mel Blank says, that's all, folks. <laughs> it is so interesting that finding the laugh in something as kind of important as death is so useful to us. But it's useful to us even if it's not about death, of course. It, yeah, it's life-affirming. It's life-affirming. And you know what? It's an indicator of something else I talk about in the book, which is that people die exactly the way they live. Dying does not give anyone a new personality. Mm. It, it, You know, there's this old joke about the Jews. Heinrich Heine made this joke about the Jews. He said, the Jews are like everyone else, just more so. <laughs> right, I remember that. Isn't that great? <laughs> yeah. And I don't think death changes our personalities at all. It makes everyone more so. And you have to make peace with that because sometimes that's that's really tragic and painful. That a dysfunctional relationship when someone is alive continues to be dysfunctional when that person is dying. Sometimes the fact that people die the way they live is painful, but oftentimes it's so beautiful. You know, we've talked about how death affects us the death of another person affects us, how we can relate to the other people who are left. But something that I wasn't aware of as a thing to do was to affect the people who will come after you with an ethical will. I had never heard that term before. Is, did, did you mean to say that it is an, an old Jewish custom? Tell me about that. You know, we all, at a certain age, almost all of us, have a, uh, an estate plan and a material will to bequeath the stuff we have acquired in life to our heirs. Since the 11th century, it started in Germany, Italy, and France. Since the 11th century, Jews have been creating a parallel document called an ethical will, which bequeaths the non-material values hopes, dreams, beliefs, and faith to our heirs. I, and, and I wrote an ethical will to my children, and it's part of the book. Uh, and I, I, I also have a copy of it bound with my estate plan to make mm. it clear to the kids that these are both important inheritances. So you put it in before the money so they'll read it. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, if there's any money left at that point. <laughs> exactly. Because, you know, there's a, there's a chapter in the book called Nobody Wants Your Crap. 
And that, (laughs) right? I I wanted to call the book, Nobody Wants Your Crap, but the people at Penguin Random House felt it it lacked elegance. So tell about that. What what crap are you talking about? Well, it's related to the idea of the ethical will. And I experienced this with my father. We die. We spend our lives working hard to make money, to buy stuff. We have collections. We have all kinds of stuff. And then we die and nobody wants your crap. Your kids don't want it. Your grandchildren don't want it. The goodwill won't even take some of this stuff. And yet we have spent our life amassing it. And the truth of the matter is that's not what your kids need most. They don't need your stuff the most. They need your values the most. And, and you know, you're gone. You're not able to communicate that to them once you're gone. And so... I, uh, you know, I wrote my ethical will. If you want me to, it's pretty long, but I'll read just the last paragraph, if you'd like, just to give people an example. Great, you know, sure. Be good and the rest works out. See the world with the people you love. Cherish time. It matters so much more than things. Mine with you and mommy has made my life worth living. I wish for you that kind of love now. I wish for you that kind of love when I am gone. Say Kaddish and light a candle for me when I am gone. Feel its warmth and know I love you still. Dad. Well, you moved me a lot with that. And what you moved me to ask you, if you'll be my rabbi for a minute, The one death that I can't imagine taking, accepting, is my wife. And if I don't want her to go before me, then I don't want to go before her. I really don't want to lose her. I think all my good intentions about taking death as a fact of life, which I do, I don't mind crossing out my contact list, crossing out people who have gone, it doesn't mean I'm killing them. It means that they're gone. They've went away. They're in another town. I'm not going to see them. They're, they've gone away for a long time. There's no rationale I can apply to Arlene. What can I do about that? Well, everyone does survive it. And I think There's obviously without knowing the circumstances of her death, thank goodness. Let's assume she's going to die the way most of us do, which is after either a a lengthy or brief disease of some kind uh, or some, some decline. And what I have learned is that the disease is in charge. And the disease has its own power and rhythm, and it carries you along and it prepares you. It, it weans you and it prepares you and you come to a place which is counterintuitive and impossible to believe until you are there. That the loving choice is to allow this person to die. Mm-hmm. That, that, you, that you supersede your own need for this person because your love for her is so profound you want her to be at peace. You know, you get to a point where, you, where death is not the worst option. 
if you really love someone and you you're not you're not ready to withstand it until you're ready to withstand it it's impossible to imagine right now alan but if arlene travels the path most humans do that path prepares the living for her death i'm not telling you it isn't incredibly sad but you will be prepared that's good thank you you're good You know, I think the last image in your book is you playing catch with your son, which became a moment that would be a memory. As you say, you were silently embracing the beauty of what would one day remain. Do you get the impression that we're at our best building up what will remain for later? Yes, and this is one of the things that gathering with so many families to talk about their loved ones has taught me. When I sit down with a family to talk about their loved one who has died, it's never the big things they talk about. It's never the career. It's never the money. It's never the job. It's these beautiful, miraculous, ordinary moments. It's, I'll never forget when he helped me build a cage for my pet salamander in the garage every night after school. It's, I'll never forget baking bread with her. I'll never forget walking around the factory with him and him introducing me to all the workers with a big smile on his face. I'll never forget those blueberry pancakes on Sunday mornings. Those are the beautiful things that remain when we are gone. And, and sometimes we don't live in alignment with that truth. You know, I sometimes say to people who are standing knee deep in a river and we're dying of thirst, you know, those moments are available to all of us if, if we understand how precious and important they really are. And, and so, yes, I think a big part of life is creating meaningful, small, tiny, precious, beautiful moments with the people we love and the people who love us. The rest, frankly, is commentary. So in a way, living a life that allows you to connect better defeats death. Well, I, would, I wouldn't say it defeats death because I don't think anything defeats death it defeats, it doesn't defeat the death of our bodies, but I agree with you, it defeats the death of our souls. Yeah, there's something that does remain. There, you know, when Arlene and I watch movies and somebody is gone, there's a trite cliche where the person who's left finds an old sweater and smells it. They're always smelling the clothes of the, the departed. <laughs> and... It, after you've seen that 10 or 15 times, you start to go, oh, not again. Stop with that. But the funny thing is, when somebody is gone, there is something remaining like a pantry closet that still has the smell of cinnamon long after the cinnamon is gone. Oh, that's so true. You know, there's a chapter in the book called The Afterlife of Memory. I, 
I discover my father in new ways every day. He still makes me laugh. Mm -hmm. He still reminds me to be humble. He still warns me about potential danger. I, I'm never without him, even though he's gone. I, I, a poet called this the absence that is forever present. Isn't that mm. just perfect? Yeah. Death is the absence that is forever present. And, and as we said earlier, that hurts sometimes, and it's so beautiful. That notion of finding beauty in the experience, to me, is very convincing. And uh, if any resistance I felt in the beginning about not living forever, I think you've reduced it. So that's nice. We have to go now. In a way, our conversation is dying. <laughs> <laughs> but it'll live on. Yeah, it will. <laughs> but before we go, we always end our show with seven quick questions. Okay. Are you game? What do you wish you really understood? Why people react with meanness instead of compassion. How do you tell someone they have their facts wrong? You might want to reconsider this. What's the strangest question anyone has ever asked you? Uh, I was on a Zoom with, we run two elementary schools in our congregation, K through six, and I teach the kindergartners for a half an hour on Zoom every week. And today a kid asked me, Rabbi, is God just a big brain? <laughs> <laughs> I want to know what your answer was. I said, I don't think of God like I think of people. I think uh, I don't, and that that's, I kind of left it at that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay, next one. How do you stop a compulsive talker? I don't. Do you, do you just stand there? I listen. Uh, yeah. You can't push a river upstream, you know, you kind of just go with it. <laughs> <laughs> okay, let's say you're at a dinner party when they're permissible again, and you're sitting next to someone you don't know. How do you begin a true, authentic conversation with that person? I lean over and I say, Alan, What's your story? Mm. Mm, that's interesting. Okay, here's the next to last one. What gives you confidence? Nature. Like I can't help but ask you why. Well, it gives me confidence that, that there's a world beyond our little worries and, 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 and our little lives. There's something eternal that those boulders are a good example you know, they give me confidence that life goes on, whether I'm a part of it or not. Life goes mm -hmm. on, the world goes on. And, it, and there's death and regeneration and death and regeneration and death and regeneration. And that's the beautiful energy and power of existence itself. Okay, last question. What book changed your life? When I was 12 years old, I read Elie Wiesel's book, Night in my tiny little bedroom basement in my tiny little Minnesota home in the winter. And I learned from that, that one could write from one's own particular experience and reveal something universal within it. You write beautifully you, you, and personally. 
and it is universal. It couldn't be more universal. You couldn't write about a more universal human topic or, or more beautifully. I've loved this conversation. Thank you so much. It's been my honor, really my honor. You're the most thoughtful podcast host I have dealt with, uh, I think, in my entire life. Oh, I thought you were going to say today. No. <laughs> <laughs> You're definitely the funniest. Great to talk with you. I loved it. Thank you. Thank you, Alan. Bye-bye. Bye. This has been clear and vivid. At least I hope so. My thanks to the Kavli Foundation for sponsoring both Clear and Vivid and our sister series, Science Clear and Vivid. The Kavli Foundation is dedicated to the advancement of science for the benefit of humanity. Rabbi Steve Leader is the senior rabbi of Wilshire Boulevard Temple in Los Angeles. His new book is The Beauty of What Remains, How Our Greatest Fear Becomes Our Greatest Gift. His previous books include the best-selling More Beautiful Than Before, How Suffering Transforms Us, you can find out more about him on his homepage, steveleader.com. That's steve, L-E-D-E-R, dot com. This episode was edited and produced by our executive producer, Graham Chedd, with help from our associate producer, Gene Chimay. Our sound engineer is Dan DeZula, and our publicist is Sarah Hill. You can subscribe to our podcast for free at Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you like to listen. Reese's Peanut Butter Cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see. So, no, that's a good thing. Uh, (laughs) That's definitely not a problem. Uh, Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil. Next in our series of conversations, I talk with Laura Linney. Laura's a brilliant actor, and I know from working with her that she really values connecting with her fellow actors. But what do you do when the other actor doesn't connect back? I can remember I did a play once and I was working with someone and it was not going well. This person was really struggling. They were having a very hard time. If I honestly responded to what I was seeing, it would not be the play. I realized that I had to manhandle the narrative back into what we were doing. And I focused on the first button of this person's shirt. I had a, an incomplete relationship with, with that bit of the costume that that other person was wearing. It goes against everything I, I know to be true about acting, but I also knew that my first responsibility is to the story. Story first, story first, story first. And if you get too far away from story, an audience will get nothing out of it. Laura Linney, next time on Clear and Vivid. In the meantime, check out Thursday's episode of Science Clear and Vivid. I'll be talking with Dr. Kizmikia Corbett, the scientific lead of the coronavirus vaccine program at the NIH. The work of her team is one of the reasons the Moderna vaccine was developed in months instead of years. We talked right before I was to get my second shot of the vaccine. Some of the really cool things that we started to understand about the coronavirus spike protein really helped to fuel this rapid vaccine development for SARS-CoV-2 and the COVID-19 vaccine. So the protein that you're getting when you get your second dose tomorrow by way of the messenger mRNA is a 
so-called pre-fusion spike protein. So it's basically the protein that gives you the best immunity um, that you can have. Dr. Kizmikia Corbett not only played a key role in developing the Moderna vaccine, she's now using her ties to the Black community to encourage people who are wary of vaccines to get their shots. Next time on Science Clear and Vivid. For more details about Clear and Vivid and to sign up for my newsletter, please visit alanalda.com. And you can also find us on Facebook and Instagram at Clear and Vivid, and I'm on Twitter at Alan Alda. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye.